Amen. You may be seated. If you're visiting with us, we've been traveling through the book of Acts together, and we'll return there. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me in Acts chapter 20. Uh, Acts chapter 20, we are going to start in verse 13, and I will read until uh, verse 27. Uh, Once again, that's Acts 20, verse 13. Um, If you are visiting with us, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I have the uh, privilege of serving as the lead pastor here at FAC. Um, It's good to have you with us, and I hope that your time with us has been encouraging so far. Um, It it would be a great encouragement to me before the morning is over if we had the opportunity to meet, um, even just after service. I'm typically always available after service, and so if we have not met yet, please uh, uh, feel free to come up and take a few moments just to say hello. Uh, and introduce yourself. Um, Once again, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 13, I invite you to follow along with me uh, as I read. But going on uh, ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, as your word says in the book of Lamentations, your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You, Father, are our portion this morning, and we put our hope and trust in you. This morning we seek you out as we study your word. Through our time together this morning, by the power of your spirit, would we know of your love and of your faithfulness to us. We thank you and praise you. Uh, that, that you are so faithful to us that despite our proud posture toward you, you gave your own son to pay the price of our sin on our behalf. That, that he faithfully endured the cross so that we might gain his reward. Let our hearts now be postured in such a way as to submit to you. 
and be obedient to you. It's in your precious Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. This past week, I stumbled across uh, an article uh, in a magazine that spoke about the um, significant increase of pastoral burnout within the past few years. Um, The the article referenced a uh, Barna Group survey from October of 2021, which revealed that 38% of Protestant pastors surveyed had seriously considered quitting full-time ministry that year. And, And while that is a shockingly high number, What's even more alarming is that it was nearly a third higher when Barna asked the same question just 10 months prior in January of 2021. And I don't think that this is unique, this burnout to pastors either. I think this is true of believers across the board. Uh, By and large, what I observe is that Christians are just worn out. Uh, Believers are growing weary in in the temptation to decide to follow something else other than the Lord is is strong. Um, Now, this is not something that happened overnight, but something that has been brewing for quite some time. Uh, And I believe that a large part of that is that our culture, at least here in America, continues increasingly into what's called and identified as a post-Christian culture. Now, what does that mean? It's, it's hard to define what is a post-Christian culture. In the simplest form, it means that Christianity, as a traditional institution, no longer has the same influence that it once did in our culture. Christianity is no longer the dominant or most influential worldview or religion in our society. Now, I personally think that this is an occasion for opportunity uh, rather than an occasion for for lament, Uh, but that does not preclude the fact that it is harder to live as a believer in a post-Christian culture. One author on the subject writes that the cost of living in a post-Christian century is that things will no longer be as easy or friendly as they used to. The the assumption, the the author writes, is that in a post-Christian age, following Christ will be tougher than it has been in the past. The church will need to learn to live on the fringes as a politically incorrect outsider rather than being a stakeholder of the sacred alliance between the altar and the throne. It's no longer comfortable in our culture to be a Christ follower. And that is a good thing. It's as Christ intended it. But as a result, this should renew our attentiveness to the widespread call in Scripture for endurance, for perseverance. In the article that I referenced earlier, one pastor author worries that we've actually missed the forest through the trees, for the trees when it comes to actually ministry health, as pastors are even stepping out of the pulpit and stepping out of their positions. He says the greater need is not to say that we need to raise up new pastors as if to only just fill the gaps that are being created. He said the need is to strengthen and help pastors become resilient. And the primary role of pastors is to come alongside believers and teach them God's word so that they may be 
resilient as believers. And who knew resilience more than the Apostle Paul? That's what we find in our passage. We find ourselves here in Acts 20. It's the tail end of Paul's third missionary journey. Um, Last week, we left Paul in the city of Troas. And in the the first four verses that we read this morning, uh, we find Paul traveling down the coast uh, of Asia. These cities are actually little islands off the coast. And Paul is kind of playing hopscotch as he travels down. And uh, ultimately, his final destination for the, for the, uh, the missionary journey is Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem across the Mediterranean Sea. But before he sets sail in that direction, he makes a pit stop in the coastal town of Miletus, which is about uh, 30 miles south of Ephesus. And it's here in Miletus where he summons the elders of the Ephesian church. Now we'll get more into the role of these elders next week, but all we know, need to know this week is that these elders are the overseers of the church, the, the local church in, in Ephesus. They are the spiritual leaders and they travel down to meet Paul in Miletus. Now as to why Paul summons them, if you let your eyes wander to verse 25, it gives us some clarity and it actually sets the tone as to what's happening here. Uh, He tells the elders, Behold, I know that none of you uh, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul is under the assumption at this point in time that he will never see these Ephesian elders again. And so this whole passage, including the one that we'll read next week and study next week, serves as sort of a a farewell speech. These are departing words. Paul is gathering them to, to say a very sweet goodbye. But it's more than just a farewell because Paul is giving them some final words of instruction here. Paul is taking one last opportunity to encourage them and spur them on and give them guidance on how to persevere as church leaders, especially in his absence, so that they can train those, the, the, the flock that's been entrusted to them how to persevere. In the passage that we read before instructing these elders on what to do, Paul reminds them of his own faithful endurance through the years. He uh, sets up the exhortation that we'll look at next week, Um, the the exhortation for them to faithfully endure as spiritual leaders by reminding them how he himself faithfully endured. Paul is a model to them. Paul's ministry of perseverance is an inspiration for the continuing work of these elders. And it is also uh, an inspiration uh, for us, right? For our action and our continuing work even today. And faithfulness is the key theme and concept at play here in Paul's ministry. There are three areas in our passage where we see Paul's faithfulness on display that he reminds the Ephesian elders about. We'll look at them together first. He is faithful in service, or another word we could use is ministry. He is faithful in ministry despite hostility. He is faithful in ministry despite hostility. We read in verses 18 and 19, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, 
serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. The, the, the word for serving in verse 19, it means that Paul took on the posture of a slave. And, and really that posture is the call on the life of a Christ follower, of every believer. If, if you were to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And this was a job solely reserved for the lowest slave of the household because of how filthy and dirty feet were back then. It, 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 was, it was such a humbling job for the lowest of the low. And it was such a humbling job, in fact, that Peter... One of the more proud disciples, followers of Jesus says, Jesus, you're never going to wash my feet. I refuse to let you wash my feet. No, I am, I am not going to allow you to stoop to that level, to serve me in that way, to humble yourself in such a way. But we remember that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as the word says. And so Jesus essentially tells Peter, Peter, if I don't serve you, if I don't humble myself, then you will never be clean and you have no part with me. You see, Jesus' response is an allusion to the cleansing that comes from the cross and the humility of Christ that it took to get there, that he would humble himself even to the cross. Peter, if I don't humble myself, you will never be cleansed. Your sin will still be an issue. So Jesus washed all their feet and he says, if I then your Lord and teacher, meaning himself, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, Jesus says, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Basically, Jesus says, I am your master. I am your Lord. I am your teacher. It's obvious that you're not greater than I am. So if I am humbling myself and taking on the form of a servant, if I am humbling myself by submitting to death, what do you think that I would expect? from you. This is what Paul means when he says that he served the Lord with all humility. Because ministry, service by nature is a humiliating job. You can't even call it ministry by definition unless there is a certain degree of humility, unless there is a giving of yourself. It takes a level of humility to serve others and put your needs before their own. This is why ministry for the Christ follower is hard enough as it is, right? Because as we seek to serve the Lord in our workplaces and in our families and in our schools and in our church and in our community, we are often at war with ourselves. We are daily confronted with our own selfishness and our own pride that we have to put to death should we desire to serve other people. We are called to lay down our lives as Christ laid down his life for us. And Paul did this in Ephesus. He loved them more than he loved himself. He put their needs before his own. And we're told later on in verse 31, we didn't read it, uh, but, but that he was there for three years. For three years, Paul says, since the day I arrived, I have served the Lord with all humility. That's impressive. And what makes his faithful service more impressive is that he did it 
despite facing hostility. Once again, it's hard enough to serve the Lord with all humility, the giving of yourself. It's even harder when you have a target on your back. Right? Imagine the daily humility, the daily even anxiety that Paul faced knowing that there were people out there to get him. It would have been so easy for Paul to try and lay low, and no one in particular would blame him for it. But from the other verses in the passage, we see that that did not happen, that he did not stop his ministry. Once again, verse 31, for three years, I did not cease, night or day. The location of his ministry didn't change. That's verse 20, where it says that not only did he teach from house to house privately, but he also still taught publicly. He he continued to minister in public, out in the open space for all to see. And his target audience didn't change. That's verse 21. He testified to both the Jews and the Greeks. Remember, the, the trials that Paul speaks about specifically happened to him through the plots of the Jews is what he says, yet he is still ministering to them. As hard as ministry can be, it is, it is much easier to humble yourself for people that you know love you. It's easier to, to minister to those who, who, who know love you and you love in return, but to love your enemy, someone who wants to kill you, is an entirely different level of service, of ministry. But Paul is faithful. He is faithful in ministry despite hostility. It's the first one we see. Second, we see that Paul is faithful to God's word despite difficulty. He is faithful to God's word despite difficulty, specifically the difficulty of the message. We read in verses 20 through 21, Continuing on, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul touches on the same concept again in verse 27, where he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Everything, everything that God instructed Paul to say, he said, Paul preached the full message of God. Paul communicates the full scope of the will of God, and he didn't leave anything out. He didn't shrink from it, he says twice. The word shrink here, it means to hesitate. He didn't hesitate. He didn't back down. He didn't pull any punches when it came to communicating the full, whole counsel of God. Well, you may find yourself wondering if what Paul declares is profitable, which is what he says in verse 20, then why on earth, if it's good for us, would there be this temptation to shrink? Would there be this temptation to hesitate, to to preach the whole counsel of God? Well, because not everything that is profitable for us is enjoyable. There, There are a lot of enjoyable things that are not profitable to us. And there are a lot of profitable things that are not enjoyable to us. Just sit me down in front of a plate of broccoli and say, eat your vegetables. But I don't want to, but it's good for you. Open up. So so to say that Paul was faithful to declare the whole counsel of God, it means that he preached all of it, even the non-enjoyable parts, the parts that people didn't want to hear. And what did he preach? It's summarized well in verse 21. He preached 
to everyone repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a difficult message to hear. Because what is repentance? Repentance literally is a turning point. It's a pivot point. It's a reorientation of your posture toward God that the Holy Spirit enables you to do. Repentance is the story of every single person that was baptized earlier today. Right? You heard the stories. They're all the same. I was walking the way of the world. And that way was marked by selfishness. And that way was marked by pride. And that way was marked by frustration. And that way was marked by sin. And it was marked by death. And then I met Jesus. Turning point. Pivot point. And by his spirit, I put my faith in him to turn me around. To set me right side up. To change my position towards God. And this is where the difficulty of the message comes in. Because we never come to a place of repentance until I recognize my initial position against God in my sin. That that I am a great sinner under divine judgment. That, That the only thing I deserve from God's hand in my rebellion is punishment. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Or have you ever talked with people before and said, I just, I want God to give me what I deserve? No, you don't. No, you don't. I will never come to a place of repentance until I understand that the way that I live my life and the way that I view the world is not honoring to God. That, that the sin written on my heart by my own doing has actually made me an enemy of God. And I will never come to a place of repentance until I realize that I am spiritually bankrupt. That there is no good in me. That's what Paul writes in Romans 7. Not only in my own sin have I dug this pit, this grave for myself, but there's nothing that I can do to get myself out of it. Right? There is no amount of knowledge There is no amount of wisdom. There is no amount of resources. There is no amount of morality. There is no amount of ability in myself to save myself. Hence why I need to put my faith, as Paul says, in Jesus Christ as the only one who is capable of lifting me up out of my sin and out of the grave and out of my rebellion towards God and make me right and innocent before God. That is a tough message. So tough, in fact, that even some of Jesus' first followers in John chapter 6 said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Jesus, who's going to listen to this? And then some of Jesus' first followers, after hearing the message and after declaring how hard it is, walked away and never followed him again. It's hard. It's a hard message to hear and it's a hard message to proclaim because nobody likes to be told that what they're doing uh, and how they view the world or who they are is, is wrong according to God. That they are guilty before God. There's nothing glamorous about that aspect of the message of Jesus, you know, the part about death. 
There's nothing inspirational or warm and fuzzy about that. Sin is a dreadful thing, and it's a dreadfully hard subject to talk to people about, yet Paul does not shrink back. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't make it more palatable. Because if you don't tell people about their deadly condition and sin, then what do they need to be saved from? At some point... If you remove sin from the equation, you no longer need a Savior. What good is a Savior if I'm not convinced that I need to be saved from anything? To to shrink back from talking about repentance actually undermines Jesus and what he came to do, save sinners. Before I see the radiant beauty of the risen Jesus, I must come face to face with my deadly sin that put him on the cross to begin with. Paul knows this, and so he is faithful. He is faithful to the full counsel of God's word, despite the difficulty of the message. And finally, in verses 22 through 23, we see that Paul is faithful to the Spirit's leading, despite uncertainty. He is faithful to the Lord's leading, despite uncertainty. He tells the Ephesian elders, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. It's very clear in Paul's ministry throughout all of Acts that the Holy Spirit is the one calling the shots. He is the one who tells Paul where to go. He is the one who tells Paul uh, how long to stay. Paul says that he is constrained by the Holy Spirit, which means that Paul is bound up. He's he's tied up. Once again, it's it's the image of of a prisoner in chains, being led according to someone else's will, being led by somebody else, not his own. Paul can't help but follow the Spirit's lead. He is compelled by the Spirit. He is faithful to the Spirit's leading. But there is a great deal of uncertainty about what the future holds for Paul. Right? The Holy Spirit is holding all the cards in the deck, but he doesn't let Paul know what's in it. While the Spirit sets the itinerary for Paul, he doesn't give much more detail than that. Paul says, I have no idea what's going to happen there, but, but, but I need to go. I need to go, even though there's uncertainty. The future for us is a dark void. It's an abyss that no human eye can see into. We have no idea what tomorrow brings. An abyss that no human eye can see into, and that can be pretty nerve-rattling for us. There is a great deal of anxiety that is induced among people who do not know what tomorrow holds. And the Holy Spirit says, this is the direction that I want you to jump into the abyss of the future. But Lord, I can't see. I don't know where I'm jumping. And the Spirit says, well, that's okay. Because I can but, but Lord, what if I jump and I, and I get hurt? And the Spirit says, well, you very may well get hurt. There, there's no guarantee that you won't. 
That's what made it even harder for Paul, I could imagine. He had little uncertainty for what to expect. But one thing he did expect, one thing that the Spirit did reveal to him, at least in his situation, was that imprisonment and afflictions patiently waited for him anywhere he went. So why does Paul do it? Why does Paul follow the Spirit's leading even though he can't see into the future? And what little he knows, he knows that there's pain waiting for him. Right? Why does he jump into the dark void knowing that the trek is dangerous and in a painful path? Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's why. In our life, naturally, that which we value most is what we hold on to the tightest. That which we value most is what we hold on to the tightest. And in the face of hostility and difficulty and uncertainty, Paul has the choice to either hold on to his own life desperately or or to hold on to Jesus. To to hold on to to Jesus and the plan, the, the, the course that Jesus has charted for him. And he chooses Jesus because he knows of the infinite value of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that even the gospel of Jesus Christ is far more valuable than his very life. Paul very well could lose his life going into Jerusalem. Remember, it was the plots of the Jews that had him in tears and trials and now he is going to Jerusalem, which is like the belly of the beast when it came to Judaism. But it would not matter to Paul if it were done for the glory of God and the advancement of the message of Jesus. Paul's only desire is to finish this race, this course that, that Jesus has called him to, to finish. The, the illustration of the race that Paul uses is appropriate. Is it not? Because a race is arduous for, for runners. I know there's people out there that enjoy running. I am not one of them. Um, I don't particularly like running because of how hard and unpleasant it is. Several years back, when Sarah and I still lived in Ohio, she came into the room with a friend one day and informed me that she had just signed us up to run a 5K with her friend. Um, I was not amused. (laughs) But I was willing to try. And going into the race, I didn't care so much about my time. uh, right? I had very, very low expectations. Uh, But I did set out a goal to not stop running the entire race. I thought, Mike, you just, just keep running. Keep running. That was my goal. Now, little did I know that there was this giant hill with a very steep incline on the course that we had the privilege of running up not just once, but twice because they looped it around. I was not amused. Very quickly, I lowered my standards. And, and, and running turned into a slow jog, which turned into a fast walk, which turned into a toilsome dragging of one foot in front of the other. My goal to not stop running changed to a new goal to not stop. Because the ones who finish the race are the ones who make the resolute commitment to not stop, to keep moving forward to put one foot in front of the other. 
to faithfully endure the path that God has charted for us, no matter the grueling terrain, knowing and faithfully understanding that God has called us to the path and that the God who calls us to the path is faithful to us in that path first. Paul had every worldly reason to quit, and he didn't. And the only reason he was able to faithfully endure is because God is faithful to us. How amazing it is that God is committed to his people for no other reason other than he loves us and he wants to be glorified. God is committed to see his people through the valley of the shadow of death. This is what we're reminded in scripture, right? Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, the one who calls you is faithful. It may be hard, but God is faithful. And because he is faithful, you are enabled to be faithful. You see, there is this authenticating quality to perseverance. Those who come into the presence of God's glory after death are not there because they somehow persevered, because they somehow were faithful to God in the end, despite all of the junk that was thrown in them in this life. No, they faithfully endured because of the faithful God who was faithful to them first and faithfully held on to them because God has them in his grip this entire time and will not let go. We are faithful. We are capable of being faithful because God is faithful to us. One couldn't possibly hope to hold on by their own strength and determination to God in this dreadfully broken, fractured, and confusing world without the one who is faithful to us first. If we're honest with ourselves, there are many times that we want to let go of God. But even in those moments, those who are in Christ, those who have his spirit, he will not let go. It is impossible to faithfully endure without God's faithfulness towards us. And so as you stand at the door of hostility or difficulty or uncertainty, you can take that step confidently knowing the character and nature of the one who calls you through. It's like the great hymn, Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness morning by morning. New mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Would you pray with me? And Lord, we thank you for your greatness, your glory, that you are committed to us as a people, that you are committed to your kingdom, Lord, because this is your work at hand. Father, we know that by your spirit, you are building a great kingdom collectively, Father, and you are, you are doing it collectively, but also individually, Lord, in, in, in lives like the ones that we've seen even baptized this morning, proclaiming your goodness to us, Father. Uh, individual by individual, you are bringing into the kingdom by the power of your spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. And for that, we praise you, Lord, and we would ask that before we leave today that there would be more that come into your kingdom today, this very day, that they would see your great faithfulness and that you are for them and not against them if they would just turn to Jesus. For this, Lord, we praise your name as we sing of your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.